When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How many angles do you have at the French Open? Almost unlimited. The best ideas seem probably pretty crazy at the time, right? The ones that are the most revolutionary. You don't give up when you are at Wimbledon. You don't give one point away. Yeah, I had a short career. I don't remember you asking me back. (laughs) Is gaming going to take a much bigger role in the future of tennis? I'm sitting down with my good longtime friend, Ken Solomon. Ken is the head of Tennis Channel. And you notice I didn't say the Tennis Channel because that's not right. It's Tennis Channel, right? Thanks, Doc. I always get that right. You do get that right. I don't know if I'm their number one fan, but I'm certainly on the short list. We appreciate the support. I always try and support Tennis Channel because they do a great job and have brought tennis into more homes in a more dynamic and interactive way of any sport that has come on the air the way you guys have in the period of time you've moved this along. How long have you been at the head of the Tennis Channel? Well, it feels weird to say it's been 15 years because it was (sighs) going to be just a little thing that we were going to give a try to. But uh, here we are, and we're just keeping going. So how many homes were you in when you started? I think yours and about five other friends. It was real small. It was in less than a few, just a few million homes. Really? Yeah. And how many are you in now? We have 65 million TV households, right, the, who get it with their cable or satellite, the normal, you know, what you think of as TV. And then we've got, you know, many more with over the top and all the other ways that we come to the audience. Yeah. So what do you figure the total reach is for Tennis Channel with over the top, all the cord cutters, yep. the premium app, everything. What do you figure your max reach is at this point? We're probably hitting about 70 to 75% of the audience, you know, uh, have the potential to reach that much of the United States audience, you know, and just put the sport in front of them, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge, <laughs> it's that, a lot that's of folks, growth on yeah. growth on growth on growth, right? Yeah. Well, what's exciting is we're doing it while the business is obviously changing a lot. So a lot of other people are shrinking and yeah. uh, it's a testament to the sport. Well, I'm going to talk about Tennis Channel again in a minute, but I want to talk about you for a while because, listen, clearly, full disclosure, Ken is one of my best friends, longtime friend. We spend a lot of time together. Even when we're not together, we spend a lot of time communicating. That's true. I mean, here and around the world. I called Ken one time and said, I'm going to be in London. I've never been to Wimbledon. I know you're wired up over there. Can you hook me up with a broker? Because some of them are not real legitimate. Can you hook me up with a broker over there where I can get some tickets to Wimbledon? He said, no, I don't think I can do that, but I do think I can put you front row, center court, right at the net, if that's all right with you. And you set up absolutely the best experience you could ever have at Wimbledon. I think I showed up, went to the Wimbledon club, 
tent where we had lunch, the president of the All England Tennis Club. It was their yep, tent, right? Phil Brook, that's right. Yeah, went in there, had lunch. Robin and I and Bill and Pat Ann Dawson had lunch in there, yep. then went, sat on the center court. I mean, there was me, Robin, the photographers, and grass. Yes. That was it. You could see the fuzz on the ball and saw great matches, had an amazing time. So that's a good friend. Well, you know, it's fun to do it and to be able to do something that makes you excited is fun. And that's kind of in a way what we try to do for everybody in some way. That yeah. was a little bit more special. Well, that was bucket list, I'll tell you for sure. I'll never forget it. So I thank you for that. But I'll talk about tennis some more in a bit. But I've known you for a long time and I'm not just having you on because you are a good friend. I'm having you on because you are one of the most unique personalities in television, in television sales, in television broadcasting of anybody I've met. And I've been in this now for almost 25 years with the time I spent on Oprah and now the 18 seasons that are here. You actually started out your career on this lot. We're on the Paramount lot right now on the Dr. Phil. Yes. Fill in the Blanks podcast studio, the back of stage 29. You started out on this lot, right? I did. In fact, the way that I came in, which is the side, is the right. way that I used to come in. I used to have to park on the street because I was an intern and I was... You didn't get to go on the lot? I, I, I did not. I had to earn about uh, $7 million in revenue before they gave me a parking space. Seriously. <laughs> but it literally was right here. You could throw the tennis ball over to Lucy Park and that's yeah. where my first office ever was. So, uh, so it's what was your home. job? Well, I was an intern in the research department of yeah. the TV syndication business. And it was a time when television was exploding. You know, yeah. they put new TV stations on. People don't remember now, but there weren't cable networks. There weren't any of those things. So I got a first class front row seat to a, this studio owned probably eight of the top 10 primetime shows right. week in and week out. And uh, it really was the place where everything was happening. And in the movie business, they had done Godfather and Flashdance and the Star Trek franchises. And so uh, I got to sell all those to individual TV stations. Yeah, and you know, the Godfather office scene was shot right here on Stage 29, where my set is now. There's a lot of history on this. It's set. all here in Lucille Ball. This was Lucy Park. And, yeah. uh, you know, the business has grown up on this very, very spot, so it's good to be back. So how old were you when you came on the lot? I was um, 19 when I first actually came here and dressed up in a borrowed hand-me-down Brooks Brothers suit and my cousin's Gucci loafers, and I bought every trade and newspaper and put it under my arm so I'd look like I knew what I was talking yeah. about. I had no idea. But it's dazzling, you know. I think you take it for granted when you're in the business, but you walk under those arches and it's special. Well, it's historic. I mean, there's so much here. You can feel and it. And tell me about these Gucci loafers because this, <laughs> seriously, this is a legend on Paramount that this 19-year-old intern comes walking in. He's decked out like he's an executive here. I mean, people still talk about that today. I didn't know really what was expected. And so I had a cousin, Alfie Dancona, and I borrowed his, uh, his Brooks Brothers suit and, uh, and ties and, and shirt. And then he had these Gucci loafers. He happened to be the same size as I was, uh, size 10. And um, he loaned me the shoes. And I, 
got the job. Did you have your own underwear? I, I mean, I, I, just about. That's about all. And I was real nervous. I'm not sure what I said, but uh, I do remember my dad saying, look, just tell them that you've tasted caviar and you like it and that you're going to work real hard. You know, I really wanted it. And uh, I'm not sure what they thought of me, but they said, we got to give this kid a try. And at one point, I'm taking ratings to all the executives, which at the time were the Barry Diller, Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg. It was the golden age, right. really. Those guys all went out to run all the biggest studios and change the business. And I got called out by the head of research at one point. He said, yelled out Solomon right in the bullpen up there and just a couple steps from here. And I thought I was in trouble. I thought I was getting fired. I don't know what I did wrong. And he said, you are the best dressed intern we've ever had here, don't you? I said, he goes, don't you know? And I, I, I didn't get it. I thought it was a real job. It, was, it wasn't really a real job, but it turned out okay. So who gave you your first job job? Well, in television. Well, I have to credit a mutual friend of ours, Greg Mydell, right. who became the sales manager here and said, look, you should go in there and, and do that interview. And from that, it led to becoming an account exec in the syndication force and Paramount really defined the business, as you well know, of how TV syndication worked. And that was really what built the lot in the studio. So yeah. those guys, it was a gentleman named Mel Harris and Rich Frank and Randy Reese and you know fa famous folks in the TV business. A gentleman named Bob Jackman was the general sales manager here and they took a chance. Well, you know, it's funny how this works out because, you know, you say mutual friend, Greg Mydell, he gave you your first job job in television. And yes. you're right. The three of us are really good friends. You know, Greg and I have been friends now for about 20 years. And when I was leaving Oprah, you know, she had said, if you ever want to do your own show, just tell me. And I never did. And one day she called me in. It was in our fourth year. I was walking past her office up in Chicago at Harpo Studios. And she said, hey, dummy, come in here a minute. I said, me? Who are, you are you talking to me? <laughs> she said, yeah. I said, it's time. It's time. You need to do your own show. That's when Burrell's transcripts, you would order a transcript yeah, sure. to a show. You said 80% mm -hmm. of our orders for transcripts are for your shows. And a huge amount of our mail is for you. It's time to do your own show. I said, okay, let's do it then. We started to do it at Harpo. That was going to become a two-show studio mm -hmm. instead of just hers. Yep. We got to looking at it and thought, it's going to strain this one studio too much. We need a production partner. So we reached out and started talking to you know Warner Brothers and different people. And Paramount, who Greg was with at the time, yep. came in. And that's when I met Greg. And within 10 minutes, he and I bonded. Because, you know, I've always said Greg should either be the head of a huge sales organization or the doorman at the Palm, <laughs> one of the two, because he's never Maybe met both. a stranger, makes everybody feel comfortable, and makes feel like you know him within five minutes. And he was instrumental in getting the Dr. Phil show out here to Paramount. We've been at the same studio for all this time, and he's been a huge factor element in the success of the Dr. Phil show. And in fact, that's how I met you. Yeah, that's right. Through Greg. Yep. So he gave you your first job. He was instrumental in getting the Dr. Phil show out here. And now the three of us are together several times a week with Freedom, actually, who's sitting over here recording all of this. Yep. <laughs> One of our other tennis buddies. And when you started with him, you were selling television. I was. And people don't really understand how that worked then and how it still works now in terms of syndication. I think people turn on the television and they look at a show and they think, well, the show's a show's a show. 
Yeah. But there's a difference between a network show and a syndication show. And you came up through syndication. Correct. Talk about what that means. Yeah. And then went to network, which right. was the opposite. Well, you know, I think that they don't necessarily have to know, but it's fascinating because when you turn on your television station, you know, whatever channel it happens to be in your local market, you just assume it's going to be there. And you don't realize that there's both the network. There were the ABC, NBC, CBSs, and Fox, the big broadcast network. And by the way, when Greg and I started, there was no Fox network, and we helped put that together as well after leaving here. And um, But you also have the local stations with their local newses and obviously the time periods around the news. And syndication used to be thought of only as reruns, right? Whether it was the old shows going all the way back to the Andy Griffiths and the I Love Lucy's right up to, you know, Friends and Seinfeld and all the shows that have been the staples. But the idea of first run syndication, of making a new show every day, was born at Paramount right here. And the first one was Entertainment Tonight, because they said, let's do a news show about the entertainment business. But they had to have satellites to get it to the TV stations instead of the tapes. And so syndication was literally a team of people going out to every single one of the 200 markets in the United States that it's divided up into and selling that show individually to a particular station in that market. Yeah, so you'd roll into Dallas, yep. roll into Spokane, roll into New York City or whatever, and call on the different affiliates there, yep. NBC, ABC, CBS, Tribune. The Independent, the Tribune yeah, station. Whatever it might sure. be, and say, okay, I got this television show, and I'll license it to you. Correct. So what kind of time slot would you have for it? What kind of money would you pay me for it each week? And you take... Usually the highest bidder, but not always. Depends on the strength of the station and yep. what kind of advertising dollars they get and that sort of thing. And a lot of people do find it interesting. I've had so many people ask me about that because I'll be on, like in D.C., I'm on Fox. In another city, I'll be on ABC. And in like a lot of the top 20 markets, I'm on CBS because that's my launch group. Sure. So. You're on different stations, and they go, you know, how is that? You're on a lot of CBS stations, but then you're on NBC. And then you're on ABC, and then you're on Fox. It's because it's whoever buys it in a given market, That's right? That's right. And if you really think about it, it's just your network, right? All a network really means in the television business is one station per market. The largest yeah. market in the United States is New York, L.A., Chicago, all the way on down to Zanesville, Ohio, number 210 or whatever it is. And that hasn't changed since I got here. What has is you got all these other ways of getting TV as well. But syndication is still far and away the biggest audiences and the audiences that you get with the Dr. Phil show, with the doctors and all of the other, you know, 12, 15 shows that you have on the air dwarf all of the new media that is very important and that we pay a lot of attention to and happy to talk about. But I think no one should forget that this is the staple that more people are watching on a daily basis, the Dr. Phil show in syndication on individual stations, you know, than all of the sort of internet stuff all added up combined. Well, you know, we hear so much, and because you've come up through it and you've watched it change, because when you started, there really were like three yeah. networks. I mean, that was it. That's You're all, selling. There were only three. In fact, the idea of Fox, when we went over to Fox, it was still, it was just starting. It was kind of a punchline to a joke. They had, you know, this crude animated show called The Simpsons, and uh, it was even before that, and a show called Cops, which everyone said, gosh, how, you know, well, yeah. well you can't do that. Yeah, and um, the idea—the idea of a fourth network was yeah. yeah, John Langley, who's also our friend, right? right? 
very close friend. It's hard to imagine now, Phil, this was not that long ago that the idea that they literally said there will never be a fourth broadcast network. And I ended up becoming the head of distribution for Fox, the network, not Fox News, which is what people think of Fox as now. And, and there's we 20th fought Century that Fox, which does the movies. Exactly, and that sort the of thing. studio. Yeah. And first Barry Diller and then Rupert Murdoch, who owned the company. And ultimately, Mr. Diller left and Mr. Murdoch made the Fox network not only competitive, but ultimately we beat when we took the NFL from CBS. We took a bunch of the CBS television station's affiliations. You talk about these local markets and syndication, but those affiliation agreements are not forever. Right. They're sort of redone. And, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners have had a case where, wait a minute, didn't that used to be ABC and now it's NBC? Because it can change. And we said, you know, we're going to come in with a new idea. Come join Fox. And we got in a lot of the major markets, we got the CBS stations or one of the other affiliates to switch. And lo and behold, boom, it's hard to imagine a time when there weren't four broadcast networks, but that was a fanciful dream. And I think from launching syndication here at Paramount and and changing the paradigm with Entertainment Tonight, which was again, the first, first run syndication show or Star Trek The Next Generation, which was a crazy idea, right up through all that's been done, it does change quickly. And if you have uh, something exciting and a great product or some or something that people love, like you and the things that you do, there's always new ways to get to them, you know, and uh, it's fun. Because you're involved in this, I want to talk about it because there's all of this talk about cord cutting, you know, people that are saying, all right, I'm not going to have the same television packages that I've had before. And it's like there are so many homes in America now that don't have landlines. That's right. Sure. I mean, think about it. How many people do you know don't have a regular telephone? We don't use a home phone number. I think we have it yeah. for emergencies, but nobody calls. Right. You don't want to pick that phone up. It's That's probably right. Spam, it's a telemarketer. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. People have really moved away from having landlines. It's just always cell phone. And now that you can Wi-Fi call, so you don't have to have necessarily good cell phone right. service, which, as you know, up on the hill with me, Used to be like a third world country up there for cell phones until it started rolling over to Wi Fi. We actually liked that a lot. Yeah, it was kind of private. <laughs> it's good to hide. Yeah. But all this cord cutting and all, I think it's great. But people forget that all of these platforms that are out there have to have content. That's right. And they get content from broadcast. That's right. If I don't make Dr. Phil shows, then YouTube doesn't have anything to put on YouTube. If friends don't make friends, yeah. Then they don't have anything, any of the reruns to put up there. And you know, I've got a Dr. Phil channel on YouTube. And last year we had over 2 billion with a B views on the YouTube channel, which is great. I mean, I love that because it gets my message out there to a lot of people. Yeah. But if I wasn't doing the broadcast side, I'm kind of like Mark Twain with regard yes. to broadcast television. The rumors of my death are greatly, greatly exaggerated. exaggerated. Absolutely. Because broadcast has to be there. Now they're starting to yeah. do their own content. Yes. You've got people like Apple and Amazon and others that are beginning to start generating their own content, but it's still going to be a while because these internet platforms are 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They are content-eating monsters. Yes, absolutely true. So you just got to keep feeding the monster, yeah, right? I think that you're exactly right. And You know, we live in an interesting world. If you think, if I could do this for two seconds, it's fascinating. If you think about how technology changes the way that people 
get their content. You go all the way back to the beginning and kind of used to tell stories around the campfire. And then Gutenberg came along with the movable type. And what did he make for his first book? He made the best-selling last handwritten book, which was the Bible, right? And then, and they always take the old content and then try to graft it onto the new. Right. And then along came, you know, Morse and, and ultimately the beginning of radio. And when they were able to, to actually do a radio telecast, they didn't know what to do. So what did they do? They read books into a microphone, right? right. So they took the old and they put it on the new. And then later came the idea of news or the play, right? right. Or the soap opera. Then along comes television. And what do they do? They've got this thing where they got moving pictures and sound. What do they do? They take all the radio stars and they put them on TV. And then when cable comes along, which was supposed to be a way to get better reception, what do they do? They take the television shows, put it on cable, but then they create the new, right? Then they say, hey, wait, what else can we do with this that's different? But interestingly, all those old mediums we just talked about, yeah. from movable type right up through radio, television, and, and, and now all the other things we can talk about, haven't extinct movies did not go away when tv came out and nor did they go away when the betamax and you know the vhs came out right and so it's more people want more and it's how do you use the new platform which is what you're saying it's not a replacement in my mind it, it could be but it really isn't for broadcast which is the broadest which does something for us right it's a big grounding mechanism uh, you are in being invited into people's homes on television, just like it always has been. That's not going away. What's going away is all the cool other things you can do to personalize. Yeah. The numbers are staggering. We're a number crazy society, right? When you ask somebody if a movie's good, they're going to tell you how many millions of dollars it did this weekend, yeah. not if they liked it or not. And yet, with all of the talk about all this streaming and over the top, and the billions and billions of dollars that they're spending on it, you are hard-pressed to find a number of how many people listened or watched something because they're still fractional compared to broadcast television. Yeah. And you're right about it being the underlying content because you think about music. At first, when I was in high school, we were listening to albums. You know, we'd put them on the stereo and listen to them. Then we had four-track. Then we had eight-track. Eight then we had cassette, then we had disc, but what was constant is you always had to have the music. You bet. You could change the medium, but you had to have the music. It doesn't matter how you listen to it, you had to yeah, have the content. Absolutely. And that really, if you think about it, was only a question of the density of the bits and bytes, not to get technical. And so that that ain't changing, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you got to tell stories and the art of what you do really hasn't changed, yeah. you know? It's funny, when I was starting, I guess this was probably 22 years ago, I was doing The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and he comes back to the dressing room before you go on and says hi. And for some reason, we always spent like 45 minutes talking back there, and Tracy Fisk, the producer, would come in and say, would you guys please <laughs> shut up? You're having the show back here. Yeah. Either let us bring the cameras in here or stop talking and go out there. It was during one of those conversations. He said, I'll give you a piece of advice. Don't ever forget the vision part of television. television. He said, tell you what I mean. He said, we were watching, and in my monologue, 
we were starting to see the numbers slip. And we analyzed it, and you know, the people were doing other things while they were listening. They were working on something, putting the kids to bed. Dad was in there kind of cleaning up, helping mom clean up, putting the kids down, doing baths, whatever it would be. Mm -hmm. And they were distracted, so they weren't really listening. We started putting sight gags in the monologue where they would like show the president at the podium. Then they would cut away and show it from behind with some actors and show the president goosing somebody Mm -hmm. next to him or something. And everybody would laugh. And they'd go, what what was that? What was that? And they had to go in there and look. And he said, when we put sight gags in the monologue, numbers shot right back up and stayed steady because people had to watch so they didn't miss the vision. What you were really doing. Yeah. And he said, don't ever forget the vision part. This is not radio. That's a good This is television. And he gave me some good advice then. I think it's very heartening, right? I think people feel, I know sometimes I do, I know executives do, but I know real people feel nervous and overwhelmed by kind of this crazy media environment. I think it's the two things that make me feel very good are number one, what you started by saying, which is this is a people business right? That matters. People matter. Vision comes from people you know and and interact, human interaction and and trust and friendship, just like anything. And that hasn't changed. It's tough. It's a business. It's show business. But, you know, it is about people and, and working real hard and trying to do something good together and relationships. That hasn't gone away. And the fact that you have to be entertaining and you have to tell a story and at the end of the day, it, it isn't that much different than sitting around a campfire. You know, you just have different tools to do it. And, right. um, and that's exciting for people because you could just make it better. But the fundamentally, the art of it is not going away. And it's how do you just make it better for people? It is changing. And I've seen this across time because when you thought about talk television 25 years ago, it was people sitting on couches talking. Yeah. That was it. There was no video packages. Yeah. It was just people sitting on couches and talking. And now today, I just got back from doing two interviews on death row in Texas, in Livingston, actually going into death row, talking to people that haven't seen the sky in 25 years. And so this talk show, instead of sitting on couches, I'm out halfway across the country talking to people that are scheduled to die. And we have video packages about their life, talking to their families, talking to the victims' families, all of those sort of things. Yeah. Nobody was doing that so many years ago. Not and even close. As you know, I was in the trial science business yep. back when I had a real job. <laughs> and it was interesting. We were looking at what jurors needed to hear to understand a case and to be persuaded towards your side in a case. And when Turner really started blowing up with the 24-hour news of CNN, Mm -hmm. you would have an airline crash and you would turn on CNN and there would be a simulation on there that would show the trajectory of the airline. It would reenact this and have either a simulation or certainly some kind of a model of what happened. And we begin to see juries expecting different things. Mm-hmm. Instead of a flip chart and listing out what you thought happened, it's like, 
if you really want me to understand, why aren't you showing me what happened? Why aren't you recreating this accident? Why aren't you showing me what happened? We sophisticated the viewing public to the point that they expected a whole different level of clarity, a whole different level of visual presentation to help them understand. And if you fail to present that, they thought you were hiding the ball. Interesting. Yeah. So we had to start trying cases completely different after, and I attribute it back to CNN when they started this 24-hour news coverage where there was a 30-minute news cycle and they kept putting this stuff up and up and up and people began to expect that sort of sophistication. Yeah. It's changed. It It's a great example. So yes, and yet you're still trying to get to what I I find fascinating is that you've always said that you always wanted to know why people do what they do. And don't do what they don't do. don't do what they don't do. And at the end of the day, we're figuring people out. We have better ways of doing it. What made he or she think of that? You have magnificent tools at our disposal from CGI. And I mean, you know, it's on and on and it's just fabulous what we can do. But we're still trying to get inside the heads of people and figure it out. And it's endlessly fascinating. It's engaging. And sometimes you just sitting on the couch talking to somebody is just as good as the fireworks. Right. And it's amazing. If you will listen, they will tell you what they want. Still the best tool are your ears. Yeah. If you will just listen to people, they will tell you what they're interested in and what's important to them. And it's interesting because every once in a while I'll see these old clips of standard death in tennis or even in football. You can't even read the numbers. (laughs) How did we watch this? It's amazing, isn't it? In our fourth season, I think it was between our third and fourth season, we went from standard death to high death. And I thought, this is not my friend. I mean, because the clarity, I thought, you know, I look like an old catcher smith on my best day. And now all of a sudden, there's this great clarity. It doesn't pixelize. I was like coming in early and smearing Vaseline on the lens just trying to hide it. It hasn't hurt you last time I checked the ratings. But it's amazing how it has changed. And I watch tennis, and how many angles do you have at the French Open? Yeah, it's fascinating that you say that. First of all, the answer is almost unlimited, you know, and we are at a point where we can literally manipulate the view to wherever you want to be. And there is a technology, it's not mass available yet, of course, where we could actually let you decide where you want to be within the court. It is fascinating because... Our expectation level, to your point, changes. I think about watching modern animation, right, which is so sophisticated. Toy Story 4, pick your favorite, right? I just watched, you know, Secret Life of Pets 2, just to to see what they can do. And yet, we were so entertained by the peanut specials, right? Yeah. And there's a point where the medium is triggering your own imagination, And it's fascinating because at the same time that we see these amazing visuals and tools, I think that podcasting is one of the most incredible mediums you have because it allows you to create your own visual pictures in your mind, just as radio always did. And that works too. You know, what intrigues me about this kind of conversation that we're having now on Fill in the Blanks podcast is it gives me the freedom to just sit down and have a freeform conversation with somebody. Whereas when I'm on Dr. Phil which obviously I love doing. I've spent a big part of my life doing it. 
is I have a fact pattern in front of me. I have people there. They have a specific set of facts. They have a problem that they have come to deal with, and I need to stay focused. I need to stay on task, and I need to get these people to a certain point of resolution in order for them to get satisfaction. All on a clock that is perfect yeah. so that everything fits. Yeah, which 42 take, minutes and 18 yeah, seconds of content. And people take that for yeah. granted, and that's why you're the master. But here, I can talk. I don't have to worry so much about the clock. And you can let the conversation go where it wants to go. And to me, that's very freeing. Yes. I get to sit down, have a conversation, and I don't have to stamp out disease and suffering. <laughs> I can just have a conversation and talk about stuff. And it's like we're talking about all this cord cutting and the technology in tennis. And as I said, I looked at this standard deaf television and I was looking at some old matches with Guillermo Villas and some of these people where it was mm -hmm. really standard deaf. You couldn't see the ball. No, you can't. Yeah. And now with ShotSpot, they get down where they can show this ball in reference to the line within like a 32nd yeah. of an inch. How many frames a second does it have to be to get that precise? Pretty much whatever you want is the answer. I chased high definition, you know, even when we before we had sort of the the resources to do it. When we knew HD was coming, I said we've got to do this cuz for some it will be pretty pictures, for us it will be transformational. And I get and I think this goes to the point of our discussion. Some of this is just nice and and it just makes it better. It's just like a new flavor. For some it's transformational and Tennis had to be free form because it doesn't, because as you well know, and I don't know if your audiences are all as into it as we are, but you know, it, it's got a very unusual format in that it's always on 24 7, 365, somewhere in the world, usually simultaneously in multiple places who aren't really talking to each other. So covering it was hard. And being able to see the ball was hard. And so the engagement level, I knew that we would be able to create by having high definition would be mm -hmm. transformational. For a couple reasons. One, inherently seeing the rotation of the ball gives you more information. You start understanding what's going on, right, inadvertently or otherwise. But it's a contest between two people again. At the end of the day, two are walking on the court, or four if it's doubles, but usually two. And one's going home in a body bag, metaphorically, of course, right? Someone is going to lose. Someone is fighting for their life. It's single elimination. And so the emotions that you go through on a tennis court are so analogous to real life, to all of us in so many different ways. And I think that's why we love it, watching it and playing it. And HD allowed you to see the expressions on the faces, the joy, the anguish, the split second decision making that, that you just couldn't, you couldn't, like you said, you couldn't even see the ball, whether the ball was in or out. Yeah. And I don't know if people really think about it this way because, you know, we analyze it and maybe we're getting too inside baseball here and people are going to switch off and go listen to something else. But as you said, I'm interested in why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do, which includes why they watch and listen to what they watch and listen to and don't watch and listen to what they don't watch and listen to. And my analysis is this. Maybe all of you listening can make a decision as to whether or not this applies to you. But I think people choose what they watch and listen to based in large part on how high the stakes are. Mm -hmm. If you watch a television show, whether it's Ray Donovan, Bull, NCIS, The Godfather, 
the Australian Open, which is coming up, whatever, if the stakes are high and you know that somebody is trained for this, it's, that's why the Olympics, yes. none of us swim competitively, but we're locked in yeah. on these swimming competitions, Early. whether somebody <laughs> touches the wall a quarter of a second because they've devoted their life to it. And yeah. the stakes are high. This is America gets a gold medal. Everybody is living vicariously through that struggle yes. for victory. And I think that's one of the reasons that Dr. Phil garners an audience, because people realize this woman has brought her son here who's going to die of heroin addiction if something doesn't happen. This family's daughter is anorexic and is 68 pounds and her organs are shutting down. If something doesn't happen, she is going to die. The stakes could not be higher than life or death. Yes. And what you do so well, and I guess I'm not saying this just because I'm here, and I think what, what separates is there's a lot of life and death going on in the world. But it's being able to reflect that in a way that people can relate to inherently without working at it. And you do that it, because that can sound like an obvious story. Like, hey, look, a lot of people are, have trouble, but it's not. It becomes personal. They become real. If you can punch through that set and reach down to people and say, this is a real person. This was like when we were at Fox and we had cops and we were going to syndicate it. And uh, the whole audience hadn't seen it because Fox was still nascent and it was on network. And we said, this is not about guys who are in blue shielded suits. This is your brother, your uncle, your father, your mother, your wife, your daughter, who is a policeman or woman who straps on a gun and a shield every day and they can die. They're real people. They are real life heroes. They're not impervious to this. And, you know, in tennis, it's interesting because I have a big thing that we try to do where people just assume that the good guys are going to win. They say, well, oh, you know, it's Nadal. How could he lose? You have to win the last point. Andre Agassi always says there's no knockout punch. There's no guarantee. You have to go out there. Someone is trying to take you out, and they might. And the margins are so close that our job is to simply hold up the mirror and make it fun, interesting, and easy to see what's going on there, to reflect the important parts that may not be obvious if you didn't grow up doing it and your parents didn't teach you about the game. What's that old saying, any given Sunday? I mean, the Patriots just got beat last weekend. I mean, they were heavy favorites. Unbelievable. That's why you play the game. Yep. I mean, that's why you don't just figure out, yeah, on paper, they win. Let's not risk getting hurt. Let's just go ahead and play the game. Yes. Let's not play the game. You play it because anything can happen. The dog can get beat. And people and make does. assumptions that they forget that. They think it's it's preordained, that the statistics mean that this is who's going to win. And it's just not true. Roger Federer may have 20 grand slams. He can go out and lose in the first round against a uh, somebody who has been studying, who has a great day. By the way, it might be that you woke up and you didn't feel great or yeah. something happened or you're, somebody called. Biorhythms. There are a, a million variables. And so how we show people that these are real people like you and me, they have a particular talent, but the, the challenge, and so you hit the nail on the head. What are the stakes? The stakes are real for them. The stakes are real for everybody on your show, and they're real for everybody who walks on that court. And I think people take that for granted, right? Getting into a major tournament for some people is 
is the result of a dream of their family, of their family's family. You know, it takes hundreds of people to get one person out there into a tournament to be able to compete at that level. Someone says, oh gosh, they're losing. They're probably just going to quit because they don't fit. You don't give up when you are at Wimbledon. You don't give one point away because you don't know if you're ever going to be back there again. And somehow we have to be able to tell that story. And when you do, it's pretty exciting, right? Yeah. They work so hard. And I've had so many of the pros come and hit at my house because they like that court. Yeah. What's not to like? Yeah. But, you know, Stevie Johnson comes over. Sam Query's been there. You've talked to Coco. I mean, you know, you yeah. know them all. Sure. Marty Fish. Yeah. Coco Isner. was just overplaying last week and, you know, she's had that ankle problem and, you know, she had to go win a wild card tournament to yeah. get in yep. and did. Yep. And so she's now in the Australian. It's Coco Vanderway. Yeah. Coco Vanderway. She works so hard. Yeah. To get it done and stuff. And I mean, it's their life. People I mean, take it for granted yeah. that it's just she's going to be there. And her parents were great athletes. And therefore, yeah. she's just, and, and boy, she's got a, you know, there are no guarantees. Yeah. I think people really live vicariously through I know I do. I mean, I watch them and, you know, I get into it and learn about who they are. And it makes a difference. That was our, you know, what you said, it was really back 15 years ago. And, you know, the best ideas seem probably pretty crazy at the time, right? The ones that are the most revolutionary. And in this case, the idea, I mean, the idea of an all news network was like, well, how is there enough? The idea of, an, of, of a single show that was just going to be entertainment news, entertainment tonight, much less, hey, we're going to have more than one talk show on the air. Yeah. You know, it seemed crazy at the time. The idea of a 24 hour, seven day a week tennis channel to most people seemed like it actually, I will be honest, even to me at first, I wasn't sure. And then sort of the light bulb started going on of all the things we're talking about. The fact that there is a story happening. There are multiple stories happening all the time around the world about people like this because of time zone changes. And so we have stakes every minute of every second of the year to reflect. And that seemed pretty special. How we did it, that took a long time. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Now tell me this, and I'm not disparaging anyone in any way when I say this at all. You know, as I know, that your reruns of some of the tournaments and some of the later rounds in some of the tournaments will outperform ESPN, for example, when they have the initial runs of tournaments. So you'll have a rerun, and they'll have the primary, and you'll outperform them not by a couple of people, dramatically. What are you guys doing that are making people wait until you have it before they'll watch it? They will turn off their phones. They will tell people not to tell them and wait until they can watch it on Tennis Channel. What are you doing that's making that happen? Well, thank you for teeing that up. And look, we most of the time we 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 do it but alone and then but there are a couple things that we share, a couple of tournaments, the biggest ones and uh, and so we will say do the encore telecast. 
there's probably two answers to that question, and they work together very well. And it's taken us a long time to get to that point. So I certainly appreciate you pointing it out. And it is true. The first answer is uh, the relentless pursuit of the best talent we can get to do it. And that means cameramen, that means producers, that means obviously our on-air talent. And when you have a Jim Curry or Martina Navratilova, Lindsay Davenport, a Tracy Austin, a James Blake, I mean, I could go Paul Anacone. Bill McAtee. Bill McAtee, John Wertheim, who's executive editor of Sports Illustrated. You know, we, we, we look to do what you do, which is just go for the best people, right? And because we do it 24-7, 365, even when we were small, we were able to attract way above what we would normally be able to get in the world of that kind of broadcast talent. And it's not that those are just great players or great announcers. It's that they're really good at storytelling, at relating to you what they see that's compelling. So that's the first part. And, and we just try to do it better. And look, it's a little, un, we have an unfair advantage. We do this 24 hours a day, seven days exactly. a week, 365 days a year. And prior to Tennis Channel, 95% of the tennis in the world wasn't on TV because it didn't fit. So you'd have CBS do the U.S. Open, and that was about it, maybe one or two others. And they do the same thing they've been doing for 20 years. They weren't innovating. We're trying to innovate. The second answer is probably in our modern world, Phil, the real answer, which is it's just hard to know where to go to find anything these days. I mean, it's right. one thing if it's one football game, right? Yeah, Everybody know. knows where the Patriots game is because it's going to be impossible not to know. But those sports operate on the notion of a format that is forced scarcity. They only want a few games so that every one of them is a mini Super Bowl. And that is brilliant for television. Ours is the exact opposite. It's turned on its head where we say, look, the greatest match that's going on in the world at any given time, 95% of the time, it's going to be live on our air as defined by us, either on our air and our over-the-top streaming so that you can pick if you don't like what we picked or we're going to bounce around and show you all of them and then you can go pick online on Tennis Channel Plus what you want to see. But you know where to go. And so if you've been watching the Australian Open or Roland Garros is a perfect example where we have all but the finals live and then pretty much and then, you know, we share one or two matches with NBC broadcast and then they do the first airing of the men's and women's finals and we do an immediate our own telecast just following. If you've been watching us for two weeks, you know, it's. Part of this is just making it easy for you. It's not your job to have to know. It's our job to say, whenever you show up here, we're going to have it for you. And when when you get here, we make sure it's good, you yeah. know? I know there are highlights in all the time that you've been at the Tennis Channel, but I'm sure you would agree that me helping to call the Del Potro-Federer match at the U.S. Open <laughs> had to be on your short list of highlights yes. in the history of tennis. And Channel. Roger Federer still holds it against you because I believe it I was the fifth set where yeah. you were in the booth and uh, all and of a Del sudden Potro things beat changed. Him. Juan Martin Del Potro and gave quite a speech. Yeah, and he beat him because Federer tried to slug it out with him. Yes. Federer is a shot maker. Del Potro's a slugger. And Federer tried to slug it out with him. That was my analysis. You I can't do right. that. Yeah. You can't slug it out with him. He's, He's too big. big. He's guy. too strong. He hits it incredibly yeah. hard. Yeah. And Federer stopped making you know, finesse shots and tried to slug. You can't slug it out with a guy. He's too big. Yeah. He's too strong. Agreed. That's my two cents worth. I think that's right. Yeah. I had a short career. I don't remember you asking me back. <laughs> We can't get you, you know, between the podcasts and all the TV shows yeah, you're making. Yeah. Talk for just a minute. Tennis is not new to you. 
your parents. Yeah. Big in tennis. How old is your mom and dad now? Well, my dad's uh, 86, and my mom is, uh, well, it, somewhere in her 70s. I'm not sure that's appropriate to, to say exactly. but She's mature. And I can't catch her. First of all, on the court, her forehand to this day is harder than just about anybody I know. And she's running up mountains and giving, and they're incredible athletes, uh, amateur athletes. My dad is in now the Southern California Tennis Hall of Fame and, and uh, is a great player and was a great athlete. He was a basketball player and, and uh, in college and, and in the army um, and came to tennis a little bit late. But what's remarkable and the sort of twist of the story is that I was clearly not going to be, and you can attest to this, the best player in our family by any means. And, you know, as a kid, if it's you go, you want to go find your own thing. Yeah. And I didn't really have the right temperament to stick to it and adjust. And I didn't learn the lessons of tennis until later. I'm still not sure I have. But I forsook the game a bit. And while tennis was our breakfast table at home, we would go out and hit and then we'd have, I mean, literally it, it permeated our life. My dad founded clubs and founded a lot of, my mom and dad, what senior tennis has become today uh, in the country. I was not that. And then our dearly departed mutual friend, Frank Biondi, um, who was also my boss at Universal uh, in the world of relationships mattering, called and said, I got an idea for you this tennis channel thing. And I, first of all, said, that's the dumbest idea. Come on. I, I mean, they had sort of been Petri dishing it. It wasn't working very well. And I just laughed and said, you, that's it. That's your idea. But I hung up the phone and called my dad and said, you're not going to believe this, but, uh, you know, because he follows obviously my career and I was leaving scripts and fine living, which I had done. And he, I said, I, th- I think I got something. I woke up the next day with the epiphany that it's kind of what we become, oddly enough. And he, I, he said, what is it? And I said, Tennis Channel. And he just started laughing hysterically because I had, for all these years, kind of pushed back. And he said, I told you tennis would be good for your career. And uh, here we are today. It's, it's well, a great irony, and it's been a great help, obviously. And you're being modest because, I mean, you're a good tennis player. You've got a great forehand, a really good serve, and a great forehand, and a Fre- really good serve. Freedom is choking uh, right now because, you know, it's all relative. You've got a good forehand and serve, and a good <laughs> forehand and serve, and... <laughs> It's starting to hurt. And I'm leaving out some things. You've but I, I grew up ball boying and doing all that stuff in this world. Where yes, the volleys weren't in there. The backhand uh, is a little less uh, well, the volley's reliable. Fine. I just but not mentioning the backhand. Uh, the, the, yeah. You the run backhand. around everything. So now and then. But, you know, I did grow up in it, oddly enough. I ball boyed at Davis Cup, and I ball boyed at what, what became the Indian Wells now. And I got to know players. And so... Almost inadvertently, I had just the background of DNA of what the sport is all about. The USC tennis players used to stay at our house. Actually, pro players would stay at our house. So I did grow up in that world, and uh, some of it seeped in, and it's been helpful, needless to say. Well, tell us about the Australian Open that's coming up, and then I'm going to change the topic away from tennis. You got it. Look, it's always exciting. I mean, one of the things that's so great about this sport is that there's a guaranteed four blockbuster movies if we were a studio every year, and that's the Aussie Ope, and that's the first one of the year uh, down in Melbourne. And uh, we can talk a little bit about what's going on down there. And then obviously it's the French, then the U.S. Open, uh, then uh, Wimbledon, and then the U.S. Open. But lots of stuff in between. And so right now we're in we're in Australia. January is summer down under for us. We 
are actually doing a lot of overtime work, obviously, with the bushfires. It's just horrible. And living in Southern California, we have a particular place in our heart and understand. I had to evacuate my house a couple of, you know, not just yeah. a, a couple well, of months remember, ago, yeah. right? And and, uh, and you were in, not out of harm's way either. But it is exciting. And it's the beginning of the year. The year has really already begun. We're in both uh, key WTA tournaments right now down in Australia, as well as this new men's ATP Cup, which is an international competition, one of three that there are now, the Davis Cup, ATP Cup, and Roger Federer's Laver Cup, the Rod Laver Cup. And, you know, there's a lot to figure out. We are in the middle of a changing of the guard moment where we are still in the, what's impossible to say isn't the, the maybe the, the golden era of tennis with Rafa, Roger, Novak, Serena, you know, still tremendous on both sides of the equation. Venus still playing. And yet all of these fantastic young players and, and they really are giving them a run for their money. There were five new players in the ATP finals this year was split new, you know, young and old. And we're seeing great players at the top end of the age spectrum. And now we're seeing 15 year olds like Coco Goff come in and, and capture the hearts of the world. She's really something, isn't she? She's something all the way around. I mean, you know, and we shall see. I hate to put, uh, you know, too much pressure on on a 15-year-old, but I, I know her. We've known her since she was 13. Her family is fantastic. She's an amazing person. Apparently, her, her father a couple days ago, Corey, who's fantastic, and mom, and they're, I, I was with them right after she won her third match at Wimbledon, which is, this is a ninth grader on center court at Wimbledon. I'm sitting court in the same seats you were sitting in. One of the few times I got to actually sit and watch because that's the unfortunate, I never get to do it. And she wins a match that she was down the first set and down one, four in the second. And she came back and won it. And I'm looking at her parents and her parents are ninth grade parents. She is was a wild she won the qualifier there was her being on center court at wimbledon beating venus williams getting to the third round was was remarkable yes two days ago her father came on court to coach and he said the word damn and she said dad you should not swear and he said what do you mean i didn't swear and she said you said the d word (laughs) and we couldn't get an interview with her after one of her matches and they said we said well why not i mean because she's very you know we're very respectful of it and she is a 15 year old but she's very very good right and very media savvy obviously and they said well because it will be past her bedtime Really? So you've got that contrasted with, you know, Roger and Serena in, you know, on the on the eve and the Bryan brothers, I might add. And they're, you know, 37, 38 years old and all in competition to see who's the best in the world. Yeah. Well, that's so great to hear, though, about Coco because she's the real I mean, thing and American like a, and yeah. and uh, very much a modern person. And, uh, we, you know, there's lots of great young players on both sides of the uh, of the gender equation. But we'll see. Well, let me ask you this question. And this is a complete jump cut here. I want to ask you a couple of political questions because you're one of the most politically woke people that I know. I'm not going to ask you any partisan questions. I'm not even going to say whether you have a political leaning one way or the other. I'm not going to ask you to go there sure. at all. Uh, you can if you want to, but I'm just going to ask you, because you are so politically active, because you do give so much of yourself and so much of your time to 
political activism on more issues than party politics. Yes. I'm curious about what you think about all of the vitriolic rhetoric and all that's going on on both sides of the aisle now because you know it seems like there was a time most of the time when people could see issues and things differently they could respectfully disagree even on things of real gravity yeah but still treat each other with dignity and respect compartmentalize those things and then maybe go work on something together or put it aside and go treat each other as human beings. And that seems to be evaporating or having evaporated dramatically at this point. Like it's either hate this person. It's almost like McCarthyism when people disagree about some things and i hear both sides saying the same thing the stakes are too high i know i don't want to go to lunch with them after we talk about this the stakes are too high which we had talked about but what do you think about that and how are we going to get back to any kind of problem solving if everything is so vitriolic and inflammatory yeah Well, I I think it is the number one issue we face, period. And it is both sides. There's no doubt about it. And it's not, and the whole notion of sides is kind of the problem. We live in a democracy uh, or even a republic. And the idea is that you force compromise, that of course there are going to be different points of view. And the initial idea was, great, let's get everybody in the room. Let's hear all the different ideas and come up with something that everyone can live with. It's just got to be that way. There's no, if, if anybody's forcing their will from either side completely, it's just going to swing too far one way or the other. And you're going to have what we do have now, which is just the pendulum going completely the wrong way from too far to the left to too far to the right. And the reality is that I don't think of myself as an activist at all. I think of myself as uh, as what you got to be, which is a citizen, and the job a citizen has some responsibility. The democracy is not self-activating, and it doesn't work if people don't participate. What does get me angry, even more than people being as vitriolic as they are, because I'm angry, but I don't know what the solution is, is when people complain without doing anything about it. And the reality is that a lot of people have fought really hard to get us to this point in the world. People have given their lives on principle. And the principle was freedom. The principle was freedom of choice. The principle was civility and peaceful exchange of power. All the things that we think of are divided separation of powers, right? And everything that you just talked about flies in the face of that. And nobody has the right to do it. And I don't know what you can do except for lead by example, because the problem is compounded by the changes in communication that we see every day. That if you want to hear people talking about the way that you like to hear it, because it makes you feel good, instead of listening to the other side, you can hear that all day long. 
and you can hear it as loud as you want. And what scares me is for, for younger people, right? And and you can take it to the ultimate extreme of foreign insurgents of extremism, you know, that will flip a kid because you at least used to have to be able to get face to face with them. But if you can get online with a kid and flip them, because teenagers for ex- are angst-ridden. Of course. We all are. And it's dangerous. And, and somebody's got to be the adult in the room and say enough. And I'm not sure what the answer is. One of the things that worries me, I guess, as much as anything, is I don't know that there is anywhere, or if there is, I don't know where it is, to go and get a factual report. Yeah of events at this point. You can tune in to News Outlet 1, and you're going to get a spin. News Outlet 2, you're going to get a different spin. News Outlet 3, is there anywhere left where they just say, here's what happened, make up your own mind? And I don't know where that is anymore. First of all, if you can't find it, because nobody knows how to do research on the planet like you do and your teams, but you alone, that, that's, that's a scary thought. I'm, I mean, I think there are people that make an honest effort to do it. Whether or not they're successful at doing that on a timely basis, I'm not sure. But that, there's a real difference between television and media, which is ultimately ratings and impressions driven. And we know that the more inflammatory, the more extreme, the more people will respond. That's just because we respond to negative more than positive because, you know, we, we had to make sure we weren't eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or fall into a crevasse. But, you know, I think if you watch the PBS News Hour, some conservatives might say, hey, that's too liberal. But I, I really do believe they, as one example, and I'm not, I just come, that comes to mind, make an effort to simply tell you what they think and to think of both sides. I will say this by definition, the fifth estate could be accused of being, they say, the liberal media. Because the media's job is to question on behalf of all people, right? I mean, that is what a reporter's... It doesn't mean they're right or wrong, but to question. And questioning shouldn't be an offensive act and shouldn't be waged offensively either, you know? And I think it's something we have to put a lot of attention behind. And I have, I've asked people in multiple administrations. I've talked to past presidents. There isn't an easy answer. I think you know that. But what we have to do is not give up. I don't think we can attack the media, right? And I think we need to put some boundaries, and and it would be nice to have a separation to say, look, here is a place where an authentic attempt to have factual discourse is. You can go here and it's certified as they're trying to be fair versus something which is obviously extremely partisan. You know, I do believe, and one of the things that I'm concerned about is that I do think that when you start getting into the kind of rhetoric that we're often hearing now, whether it's about the media or it's about the other side, I think it is actually getting to the point of inciting people to violence. Yes. And you know, violence in the worst case of you know, shootings or bomb throwing or whatever, But I think it's certainly getting to the point that it's inciting people to become aggressive towards someone that they consider to be on the other side of an issue with them, as opposed to 
saying we disagree, it's almost as they feel like they have license to or are not wearing the jersey well if they're not being loud and they're not being in-your-face aggressive. Yes. And that, to me, is a formula for disaster. Agreed. I mean, you have families around the dinner table who can't talk to other family members because of who they support. And that just, that just can't be. Fundamentally, you have to embrace a diversity of opinion. There are no right answers to any of this stuff. Well, not that I know. And so someone having a bona fide, thoughtful difference of opinion it has morphed into an insult or who you identify with. And look, I mean, they point to the moment we're in with the current administration, but the current administration is a reflection of us. When people say the government, we are the government. It's anything that's happening is entirely our fault. Yeah. Because we have the right to vote, right? And it's, it doesn't mean you're going to get everything you want. And so I, I agree with you. What do you think would be steps that we could take? Look, anytime I sit down with somebody that I'm either negotiating with or am on the other side of an issue with, the first thing I try to do is say, let's begin this conversation by talking about what we can agree on. Because oftentimes, yeah. everybody sits down and starts jumping right into what they disagree on. But if you'll start by saying, let's first talk about what we agree on. And sometimes what you find out is that you disagree about less than you thought you did. Yes. If you can just say, right, what are the things that... Isn't that really most of the time? Most actually, of the time, that's right? the case. Don't we all want pretty because much like, the same For example, stuff? if you look at both sides of the aisle right now, what can they both agree on? They both agree that they value freedom. They both agree that they want their families and their future to grow up in a safe and secure free society. Yes. They both agree that they want to prosper. You can start to list out where you say, okay, and so now it just comes down to what we disagree about is not what we want, but just how we're going how to, to do get it. there. Exactly. What is the solution? But we want the same things. But when you see frustration, there were more mass killings in 2019 than any year dating back at least to the 1970s. And that's defined as four or more people killed, not counting the perpetrator. Yeah. And in all, there were 41 mass killings. Of those, 33 were mass shootings. So in 2019, 210 people died in 41 mass killings. Now think about that. 210 people in the United States died in mass killings. If you look at the number of school shootings, and you look at the number of these mass killings, it has become to the point that it's almost not headline news. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you've become desensitized to it, and we can't. And I don't know what all that means to you, but I think it means, if nothing else, what Albert Einstein said about insanity, which is, if we expect a different result from doing the same thing, then we're not going to get it. So I think that when people get stuck on ideology and choosing sides and identifying with a side and then saying, my side says this, so I have to agree with everything they say because this is what my side says, that's where we run into trouble. And I'll look, I'll take that example. I think that 
there has to be some sensible uh, adjustment to gun ownership, for example. I think people should have the right, and I'm not against. It's a completely separate issue than are there things we could do that could take a big chunk out of that beyond putting more guns out there. And I'm not talking about, I'm saying if most people seem to agree, I mean, every statistic I see says that 80 plus percent of the country, including NRA members say, sure, it probably makes sense that you could have some kind of clip size limit, right? Or gun show loophole, whatever it is, whatever it is. Do we agree on that? Yes. But the idea that, wait a minute, my side, and I I wish I was arguing something on the other side, right? Because I'm not trying to pick one that's for one or the other. But to me, it's, it's an apocryphal issue because people do seem to agree. And yet movement is looked at as weakness. The fundamental thing, Phil, is that if democracy is based on the notion of wreaking compromise, but if compromise is looked at as weakness, which it is today, right? We have People on the right and people on the left saying, don't you give an inch. You're supposed to give an inch. You have to. In fact, if you and I were in charge and it were a company, we'd say, if you don't find a way to compromise, you're going to be fired because that's what you were hired to do. Not to build a wall and say, I'm not going to move an inch. Because we're never going to get anywhere. We're just going to ping pong back and forth between extremes. Well, I watch them arguing so much and I'm wondering, who's doing their job? Well, it's not getting done. The amount of legislation that's being passed, we're not solving the problems, and that's why they're getting deeper. And look, I'm actually an optimist, you know this, and I think the answer is, well, let's all get involved. Every single person listening here can do stuff, you know, and whatever you believe, all I would say is be educated about it, right? If you have a supposition as to what's right and wrong, I do think you have an obligation to try to, as you said, find the real facts. I worry about people just say, you know, get out there and vote. It's because, you know, when I look at people that are champions in life, you hear people say, if you want to be a champion, you need to be passionate about something. But you know, the real truth is, if you want to be a champion, you need to be passionate and you need to have everyone around you passionate. Mm -hmm. You need to have a way for them to be involved and be passionate. So it's not a matter of just, hey, if you want to make a change, get out there and vote. No, if you want to make a change, you need to get excited about voting and get everyone you know excited about voting. It's not enough just that you go cast your vote. That's like jacks are better to open. You need to do that. But you should get people excited around you, everybody around you. I've never seen a Lone Ranger that was a great success. People that are great successes surround themselves with people that want them to win. They share their passion. And so a real champion infuses everybody around them with passion and gets them in instead of just looking back and criticizing. I mean, we had a school shooting per week in 2019. I'll give you a few examples. November 15th, Pleasantville, New Jersey. November 14th, the day before, Santa Clarita, California. November 11th, Baltimore. November 5th, Langston, Oklahoma. November 4th, Warrensburg, Missouri. November 3rd, Waco. October 27th, Clarksville, Tennessee. October 27th, Laurel, Maryland. The 22nd, Santa Rosa, California. 18th, Louisiana. 13th, Nashville. You can't go more than a few days if there's not somebody discharging a firearm among our children at school. 
there's frustration. We need to stop arguing and look around and say, we have problems that we can fix. And people ask me a lot of times, they say, well, why don't you use psychological tests and screening devices? The truth is, we don't have that technology. We can't predict by psychological testing who's going to take a gun and go misuse it. Right. In fact, it's the opposite. The mass shooter doesn't show up in that way. Um, Look, and I don't know how there's what led to that, but then there are literally examples where you have people having disinformation campaigns afterwards saying, well, that never happened. Those parents made it up. That's a real thing. And I I don't know how you legislate that because we we do live in a free country and and I do believe in freedom of speech. But if you're actively trying to paint an untrue picture saying that parents made up a mass shooting, that it's a conspiracy theory, and you're allowed to propagate that because you believe you're, you believe that ultimately the ends justify the means because you think there should be no limitations on, for whatever reason you may have to do that. I'm not sure how you solve for that, you know, I, I, because people want to believe it, you know. And one thing that I will say for the average person out there that is difficult is it's gotten a lot harder to know where those true sources are. And these sources can look very credible, and increasingly, they can be from nefarious places outside this country, as we know. And that's not a conspiracy theory. That's a fact, because it's just good business to be able to to move our population in different directions. And listen, this is not as big a mystery as it seems. If you go back to 1966, there are four things in common— with every mass shooting that's happened since 1966. Every shooter. Number one, childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. Number two, there's a personal crisis at the time. Maybe they feel marginalized. Maybe they've suffered a loss. Something like that. There are examples that validate their feelings. They've seen somebody do something that says, okay, I'm right. Mm -hmm. I'm righteous in what I'm doing. And number four, They have access to a firearm. You know, I believe that 50% of the solution to any problem lies in defining it. Those are four things that are common to the shooters since 1966. We're talking 50 years here. Yeah, that's a pretty good evidence. You're talking about childhood trauma, a personal crisis, examples that validate their feelings, and access to a gun. So how come we can't get it done? And what's interesting, I just one proviso before you answer that is, and, and, and I'm not in it to debate it, but I, I hear that. You're not going to prevent people from having personal crises or feelings of marginalized. We need to work on that, but that's a never-ending challenge. But when you have people who say, oh, no, that's not the problem, and you look at The fact, I think the thing that's even more disturbing, Phil, is unless I have not heard of a single other country in the world that has this issue, it's an, it is an epidemic. I don't think it's alarmist to say that. And, and, and when you try to offer solutions and people who are ideological on a slippery slope basis that say, next thing you know, you're going to want to take all my guns away. And you, you say we, they point to other 
reasons that are not true. And you go, well, they have violent video games in northern European countries. And they have they, all these things exist in other places. They have disenfranchised teenagers sure. all over the world. And yet, you know, they they don't think that a solution is walking into their school bank or wherever and killing everybody because in some way that's going to make them feel better or someone that they saw like them did that. Well, you said, what do we do about it? Well, let me ask you a rhetorical question that you can <laughs> maybe lean into. Yeah, I said there are four things, childhood mm-hmm. trauma, personal crisis, something that validates their feelings and access to a firearm. Who knows that about Billy? The police don't know that about Billy. Justice Department doesn't know that about Billy. Who knows that about Billy? Yeah. Who knows that about Billy are the people in Billy's life. Mm-hmm. And then people go, oh, wait a minute. We're talking about big brother society here? You know, you're not informing on someone. Right. You're reaching out to get them help. Because what happens when they go pull that trigger? They ruin the lives of the people they shoot, and they ruin their own life. If you can keep someone from doing that, you have given them the greatest gift they would ever have. But the people that have access to that information are the people in those yeah. people's lives. Yep. That's who has access to this information of the people that work with them, live in their neighborhoods, live in the house with them. Yep. And one of the most troubling statistics that I've seen is over 80% of school shooters tell somebody what they're going to mm-hmm. do, right. when they're going to do it, and why before they do it. Almost 70% tell two or more people what they're going to do before they do it, and nobody and does nobody anything, does anything about, it. about it. Right? They're saying, how do we solve this puzzle? It's not really a puzzle. We know who does it. We know why they do it, and they often tell somebody when it's going to happen. Yep. But nobody acts on it. You know, people always say, if you see something, say something. I have a third part of that statement. If you see something, say something and do something. Right. I think that's right. Now, look, it's tough. If you're a parent, your kid goes, locks himself in their room, doesn't want to talk to you. It's tricky enough without guns in the equation. So I think you're exactly right. I think acting on it's right. I think everything you said is right. And you just don't want lethality to enter into a either a teenage angst picture or somebody who's been disenfranchised and is uh, feeling marginalized and feels that the only way out is to do this. Well, I hope this conversation that we're having will stimulate people to have this conversation around the dinner table. I hope it'll cause people to talk about this at work tomorrow, talk about it at Sunday school this weekend. I hope people will hear this and say, you know, I heard an interesting conversation today about violence, about vitriolic rhetoric, about these things, and about what we can and need to do about it. So maybe us, John, about it will cause other people to talk about it some. Well, your stuff is all about empowerment and empowering people and showing them how. And if we can fix any of these problems that we talked about, it's making people feel empowered to do something. We can do something, but you got to do something in order for it to happen. So it's it's good work. Long way from being between the lines on the tennis court, that's for sure. That's that's the good news is they they always say that it's boxing or war without the blood or bullets. (laughs) That's right. Well, I've kept you long enough, but I got just one or two final questions. Who's going to win the Australian Open? That's a good one. Uh, Look, I think 
men's side. Who's On the men's win? side, the question is, will it be one of the new young guns like a Tsitsipas or a Zverev or a Dominic team or maybe even an FAA? Or who knows, Nick Kyrgios, you know, who has the talent to do it. Among the three top guys, and by the way, Andy Murray is back in the world, right? So you've got the fourth in there. The feeling amongst our smart folks, I'm talking to Jim Currier and and Lindsay Davenport uh, over the last couple of days, and and Paul Annika, a bunch of them. And there's a feeling that Novak is just in such tremendous position to continue what he's done. And... So it's hard not to pick Novak on the men's side if you're trying to predict. But the magic is, you know, we both know that he has to win seven great matches and that's what over two weeks and that's what makes it so exciting. On the women's side, very interesting to see Andrescu and, and Ash Barty, who's obviously local down there. Naomi Osaka, who had two in a row coming out of nowhere in her teens, is back and looking strong. There's a lot of good young women. Uh, by the way, no one says that Coco Goff couldn't or Sophia Cannon, but there's also a feeling that Serena may be back now and that look it's 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 a she is one away from tying Margaret Court's greatest of all time record of 24 and the interesting thing is when Margaret Court did it not to take anything away from Margaret Court 11 of those were Australian opens and the Australian Open in her day it was a little harder to get to Australia way away. It was a lot less. The top players didn't play it as often. Again, she's got the number. But this is something that Serena is living for. And she's gotten real close. The question, the human nature question that you would always ask is, uh, does she have the drive to continue to do that? And uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. Well, I asked you who you thought was going to win. You gave an intelligent answer. Let me ask you final question. Is gaming going to take a much bigger role in the future of tennis? Yes. Gambling, gaming? Yes, it is. And um, hopefully for the folks out here hearing that for the first time and get nervous, understand a couple of things. Number one, tennis is gambled upon in every other country in the world except here. And actually, the truth is that the more that it is done officially— then the cleaner it is. You know, the safest city in America, they always used to say, was Las Vegas, right? Because <laughs> right. no one's going to commit a crime there because it's not in the best interest of the business. And so it's in the best interest of the people who are in the gaming and betting businesses to make sure that, there's, that it's clean. The most conservative estimate you'll get from the worldwide experts is that the current amount of money that is spent by the American public on sports betting before it became legal, right? So the illegal is about $160 billion. Billion with a B. Billion, as opposed <laughs> to the entire movie business, which is about 13 to 15. So, so it's 10 to 12 times as much. And that's illegal, right? And so that's a behavior that people like. I mean, there's a lot of people that say, look, it wouldn't be an NFL if it weren't for the ability to have a way to root along. And most of those bets are small, small bets. When you turn on the set to watch, our whole job is to help you try to figure out who you think is going to win at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And that's what's fun about it. So having a little skin in the game makes it more fun. And aren't the vast majority of people that bet on this type thing doing just that, putting a little skin in the game. Absolutely. We always have gambling addicts. We have people that will bet the farm, lose the house, 
aren't the vast majority of people betting just enough to tantalize and tease one another, and they're not trying to get rich over it. They're just putting a little something on exactly, to make it Exactly, right. It's the prop bet. It's you. It's us sitting yeah. around on the court watching and saying, hey, you know, is he going to go out down the line or wide? You know, I think of it this way so that people don't think we're self-interested in saying this. It's a form of engagement that just makes it fun. If you think about the type of gambling in sports that most people in this country participate in, it's probably either the Super Bowl or March Madness office box score, right? Mm -hmm. And there's about zero skill in that because you're just getting numbers and buying boxes. But it makes you want to watch. And that is the widest and broadest and it makes it fun and it's really about just having a little bit of fun if it gets to be more than that you know that's a completely different situation yeah but your theory about it is it keeps it clean keeps it above board it's not back alley no question leg breaking you gotta pay up front you know most people aren't even betting on the outcome of a match right it's hey how many aces it's is she gonna and the odds change and so it's fun and it forces engagement you pay attention and you get smarter and that's fun that's exciting you know and i'm convinced that if we sit down and have this discussion in three five or ten years from now we're going to look back it's going to be hard to have imagined that it was that big a deal right now fantasy is a big part of what we do on the air during the u.s open we have one of the mm-hmm. DraftKings has been uh, a partner of ours. And it's really fun. Our talent gets excited about kind of betting against each other. And it's a couple of shekels here or there and nothing more. Yeah. And if it gets more than that, then that's a whole other issue. They need to come see me if that's exactly. a bigger issue. <laughs> Ken Solomon, thanks for talking to me today. Doc, it's great being with you. Let's thanks go for play having tennis. me. I appreciate it. Can't wait. Let's go. All right. 